Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. I'm Marcello Rolando, your host for the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is Celeste Drake who is a trade and globalization policy specialist at the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. Good afternoon, Celeste Drake. How are you? I'm fine, Marcello. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm great. I'm great. It's good to talk to you again. It's an impressive title. And how often do we say what AFL-CIO means, really? So in your position there, in Washington, D.C., yes? Yes, Washington, D.C. Yes. I know you have goals about not having jobs sent overseas, but you're also a a defender of workers internationally. So how do you marry those goals? Um, They actually fit together uh, easier than you might think, you know, when you first hear, hear the two of them. You know, we have an obligation here as an organization that represents our members, so members of the... 56 affiliates that are members of the AFL-CIO, mm-hmm. um, and all American workers, which we do through our work for better policies, whether it's labor rights, minimum wage, Social Security. Um, but we also are a partner in an international labor movement. Mm-hmm. So we have counterparts in all the other countries that we trade with and work with. So whether it's Japan or Mexico or Australia or France, we work with them jointly to identify sort of the most egregious abuses of labor mm-hmm. and to fight against them and try to improve them. And there's there's an old saying in the labor movement that goes, an injury to one is an injury to all. Mm-hmm. And yes. you can think about it in your own workplace, right? If they can take the person next to you, whether it's in an office or on an assembly line or, you know, everyone's out in the field doing deliveries or sales or whatever kind of workplace it is, if that person can be abused mm-hmm. and not be paid the salary that he or she has a right to or not be given the time off that he or she has a right to or not be given the safety equipment that he or she has a right to, 
you can see how that would directly affect you. Yes. Because as they're paying somebody less, treating somebody worse, oh my gosh, you're next. Exactly. No, I I, I hear what you're saying. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's just, it's also true internationally. Because if there's a whole country where they can pay workers less than they're promised, uh, make them work in unsafe conditions, you know, not provide them the rights that they have to form a union if they want to and, and collectively bargain, then that whole country, first of all, those workers are going to be less well off than they ought to be. Mm-hmm. But again, through competition, that affects us back here. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and since we've sort of jumped right into the international part of this, of the union movement, our relationship with China is a complicated one, and I, I don't ask you to be an expert on China, but you probably are, are more of one as far as international labor is concerned. Uh, we know there's a different system in China. We know that we owe China a lot of money now as a nation, and we also know that China's economy, kind of put in fast forward to catch up and pass America, is having a problem that any individual has when you rush to do something instead of doing it carefully the first time, if I may be so blunt. How, uh, and let's throw in immigration too, how how does labor affect in- integration? How is what China is going through economically affecting union movement in America and around the world? Those are a lot of big questions, I know, but... Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of big questions, but let's let's start with... China, and China has been, you know, as you know, it's been growing really at what we would consider, compared to U.S. growth rates, really astronomical rates. And this is really, right since the turn of the century, China has just exploded. Mm -hmm. And part of that, you know, it's been quite successful in alleviating poverty in its own country and coming from a a country that wasn't, you know, go back 30, 40 years, it wasn't considered a globally influential, you know, it's now got, it's one of the leaders at the IMF, because the Chinese currency is included in the IMF's currency basket, it's in the G20, It's, it's really a leader. And part of that growth, as you say, it's been a little bit mismanaged, but some of it is China is becoming so successful that its workers, they want their fair share. Mm -hmm. And they see that they're not getting it. So as the whole country's growing, actually, inequality is also exploding. And you have a lot of workers saying, wait a minute, we we are contributing. In fact, we are really the sole source of all of this growth. And we'd like to get our fair share. And there is no free, independent labor movement in China mm-hmm. where workers can sort of work peaceably with each other and with their employers to try and achieve that. And mm-hmm. because there's no other outlet, you see a lot of what are called wildcat strikes. They're yes. sort of not authorized under law, and the workers stop working. And only through the strikes are they able to raise their wages a little bit. And it's interesting to see how international capital, you know, the employers, the factory owners, are reacting to that. They don't want the the wages to rise. And so they are looking for other places to invest uh, where it's cheaper. So actually that's causing some of the growth that you're seeing in Vietnam, Thailand, Mm -hmm. other places in Southeast Asia. 
because they're looking for wages that are even lower than in China. Yes. So that's causing lots of churn. And, and what you're seeing with the Chinese stock markets and all of that, a little bit of that is sort of valuing sort of the stock market economy over yes. the real economy. Yes. And so some of, the, some of that churn is probably uh, overwrought. And, and not really there, but, but what you're saying is China's going to have to like come to grips with its whole growth engine cannot be solely on exports, yes. as it's been in the past 15 years, because demand in other places, including in the United States, is decreasing. Mm-hmm. And, and in part in the U.S., it's because we don't have our own economic house in order. We have stagnation here. We have immense inequality here that you hear, you know, folks talking about on the right and the left. Yes. And that means demand is suppressed. Your average worker isn't able to buy all of the things that he or she wants or needs. Mm -hmm. And when we can't shop, then China isn't selling exports. Then it's got to say, oh, we should let wages increase here because that will increase domestic demand. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That will help China, that will help U.S. export to China. It's, it's really, but it's hard because the business community is so ingrained in sort of push down wages, push down labor costs, minimize, 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 that I think it's hard to get in that mindset where they have to see, wait a minute, mm-hmm. wage growth can actually be really beneficial here. And that's something that traditionally it's been effective labor unions that have caused that. When you go back and look at the United States and the U.S., sort of the one period that we had of where we created the consumer society and we created a really powerful, strong middle class, mm-hmm. it was the post-World War II era yes. when we had very strong labor unions. You know, uh, well, obviously, you were the person to ask about China. Uh, that um, <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me for doubting that for a moment. I thought I was going to put you on the spot, but that didn't happen. Thank you. And I'd like to say uh, that two big takeaways for me from that uh, incredibly informative statement is of yours is that, um, number one, uh, China, like any growing economy, is going to face, because it's human nature to want some of the fruits of your labor, for heaven's sake, and imagine if that is happening in China, it can happen anywhere in the world. And I find that extremely uh, optimistic. I find it uplifting and, and in- inspiring. And then the other thing is that uh, something I've always believed, it's not like it's my idea. I, I, I think uh, if it's anybody's idea, it was uh, John Ford in that, you know, I, I want to employ these people. I don't necessarily, I don't know if he was thought about having a union or anything, but I want to, to give them enough money so that they can buy the cars they're building. And it just made so much sense. So capitalism depends on exactly what you were saying. The labor, that is the people who are doing the work, it always offends me when I, you know, there's certain people who say, we built that. Well, the people who we built that really were the ones who were uh, the wage earners. But if they don't have enough money to buy products, then the, the system fails. What are you, Absolutely. Uh, that's, no, that's exactly right. And I think you bring up Ford, and he's a great example. He was known, actually, as a, he hated unions. Yes. He tried to bust unions. But he did have the concept, right, that... Look, if you've got so many people working for you, 
they ought to be able to afford whatever it is that you're building and selling because that is going to increase your demand. And that's that's a critical concept that it seems sort of, unfortunately, with our current financial and corporate culture where mm. the focus is on the next quarter's profits or the focus is on how do you make money by investing rather than making money by making something, yes. by manufacturing. Yes, manufacturing, yes. Yes, those ideas are, are getting lost. And it's something that, you know, China's a perfect example. It's going to have to come to grips with it. Yes. As will other developing countries that are sort of hitting that, they call it the um, the middle income trap. Mm -hmm. When the, these countries are, they're doing successful, they're no longer as poor as they were. Of mm -hmm. course, you, you would be wrong to say there aren't. There isn't huge poverty still in, in a lot of places in China. But how do they break out of that and into, you know, more of a comparable economy to what Japan and the U.S. and mm -hmm. Europe have had for the last decades? And part of that means, you know, and this is a little bit scary for authoritarian governments, mm -hmm. unfortunately, yes. giving workers some say in the workplace yes. and the ability to, again, when they want to, you know, having the free choice to form unions and have those unions be effective and be able to engage in good faith collective bargaining, because that is critical to raising wages. Because even if a country says, oh, well, we'll raise our minimum wage, that's a good thing. That's a positive thing. But that's minimum is minimum. Exactly. That implies there's, you know, so much more growth to have so many more places to go to be in the middle class. And, you know, middle class wages do not raise themselves, and they've mm -hmm. ne they never have, mm -hmm. because an individual worker's sort of political and economic power, as compared to the employers, it's just not enough. Mm. But when workers band together, they get some power, and they can negotiate better wages. And we know through economic studies that, frankly, in industries that have strong unions, the wages of even non-unionized workers are pulled up yes. because those employers say, oh, I've got to attract good workers, too. I better come close to the wages they're paying over there at that unionized plant or nobody's going well, to want to work here. Exactly. I, I, You know, it seems to me also another point is that you're, uh, that you're making is that uh, – there's so many corporations that we feel are, you know, pro-America, in America, of America, etc. But these corporations are chasing to get more for less around the world. In other words, they've, they've moved, branched out from America where unions, they feel, are uh, demanding too much compensation. And they look for poorer countries where they can have sweatshops. And now, as you've pointed out, if China can no longer guarantee cheap labor. That won't be eliminated anytime soon, necessarily, but certainly they've started in that direction. Then when you go to Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and so forth, searching for something for nothing or next to nothing, it is the good news part of half full glass of that is that the corporations are on the run, sort of, to find cheap labor. But, of course, the bad news is, is that for decades, there are people working in, in all over the world who do not have the benefits of an AFL-CIO. I, I guess there was a question in there somewhere. What do you think? How's that? <laughs> no, I think, I think that's exactly right. And, and the problem is the, the incentives that our system sets up. It's not that 
you know, folks in management are inherently bad people or yeah. workers are inherently good people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not about that, but it, it really is about these incentives which, which push to what's going to be on the next quarter sheets and how do I drive down costs. Mm-hmm. And that sort of short-term thinking has, you know, some, some it backfires yes. quite a bit. And, yes. and this search for the cheapest, and it's not just cheap labor, it's also who's going to tax me least and who's going to uh, put the least burden on me to not pollute the environment and the air exactly. and make the water dirty. So it's a, it's a whole host of things, and it's not certainly not just labor costs, but that all comes down to a corporation's decision about where it will produce. And mm-hmm. there are many iconic U.S. brand names that simply don't make anything at all here mm-hmm. in the U.S. anymore, or they make some here, but they make an awful lot overseas. And in fact, there are some outrageous things that a former CEO of GE once said, the perfect factory would be built on a barge so that you could just move it around to the country that had the lowest cost. There you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that doesn't compute with most Americans thinking about shouldn't our businesses want our country to do well so that we, again, to get back to, so that we can buy their product. Yes. And when when they say things publicly like it's our intention to become a Chinese corporation or no, we don't owe anything to the United States, mm-hmm. you know, Americans need to know that and to remember that, you know, it may have been true in the 50s when they said what's good for GM is good for America. Yes. But that link is no longer there, and often what's good for a particular company, as expressed by you know the profits that they post to Wall Street, is not good for the workers, mm-hmm. because at the same time they're doing that, they're decreasing wages or they're laying people off. So we all have to kind of get our minds around, how do we work it so that business, when businesses do well, workers do well. And that's unfortunately not the current situation. And that relates to trade, not because trade is the only cause of those workers and and managers, you know, benefiting both at the same time, but it's one of the causes because it's really de-linked, the link between American workers who are sort of the the middle class for the world, Mm -hmm. you know, we're the consumers for the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we de-link the success of the American worker um, with the success of companies, we start seeing this problem in the world where there's not enough demand and no, none of the countries are hitting the growth targets that say the World Bank projects every year. And that's a problem. And we can do better. And we, we can all do better where the workers in the U.S. do better, the workers overseas do better, companies make money. But it's just not going to happen under by repeating the same exact rules. We need to change things up quite a bit to get on a new trajectory. And that's why one of the major things that I'm working on is this Trans-Pacific Partnership, mm-hmm. or TPP. Yes, yes. It's a proposed trade agreement between the U.S. and 11 other countries, Asia-Pacific countries. So Mexico, Chile, Peru, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam. And the rules that it sets down are largely the same rules, in many cases, word for word, as the prior trade agreements that have helped 
put us in the predicament that we're in. And what we're arguing is, is it's got to be a total overhaul mm-hmm. or we can't have it. It will just push us farther down the road of wage stagnation, income inequality, loss of factories, and we can do better. All right, we're going to take a break right there. We're going to come back and talk more about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. We'll be right back with Celeste Drake. Stay with us. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Today's film handles a difficult subject with empathy and respect, along with just enough humor to soften the journey. It's the story of two adult siblings damaged by an abusive childhood. The Savages is built on carefully nuanced characterizations inhabited by two Oscar-winning masters of their craft, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Laura Lenny. Here they play siblings dealing with their father, the source of their childhood misery, in the final stages of his life. The burden of facing their father is in painful conflict with family obligation. They carry their emotional baggage close, the self-inflicted source of their own misery. It sabotages both their relationships and sense of self-worth. Along with us, they gradually discover the true source of their pain and begin the journey to leave the past behind. They learn that we must all own our own now. There are other lessons in this intelligent film, none more important than realizing we will all likely deal with the issues of decline, both as children who owe our parents a dignified end, and ultimately as the principals in our own story of transition. The Savages is another example of what independent film is all about. It's a personal story, a story that teaches us important lessons about ourselves. Indie Film Minute, not in theaters, discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is Celeste Drake. And as you may recall, or if you're just joining us, she is a trade and globalization policy specialist at the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. That's AFL-CIO. We're going to talk more about TPP. As most people know it, it's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I'm going to start this segment with a question that not everyone knows because we don't hear a lot about what corporatism and corporations uh, are doing. TPP is a big example of um, what is a secret, but people like Celeste Drake are uh, exposing the truth about it. But I'm going to ask the question from this point of view. Recently, we got the great news. Everyone was excited throughout the world that there was this climate change agreement between a number of nations to work together for to save the planet from climate change and global warming and everyone was excited now sitting at that table with all of those heads of government to talk about saving the climate saving earth saving the environment were were corporations the very corporations that are polluting the air and the water we drink. So connecting that kind of power, sitting around a conference that's going to reach an agreement on how to save our environment, marry that, if you will, Celeste, with how TPP is keeping that kind of international power 
over all of us in the hands of the super wealthy? Wow, great question. And there's there so many places to go with that. But, you know, unlike, I will say this at, at the outset, unlike the climate talks, which just concluded in Paris, mm-hmm. um, they were open. And not only were corporations there and sitting at the table, uh-huh. but so were labor unions and yes. environmental activists and consumer activists. And it was fairly easy if you were one of these interest groups there trying to represent the interests of your groups to figure out what was on the table, what what different options were under discussion, and to sort of say to, to the government officials making the decisions, please choose option A, and at all costs, do not choose option D. Yes. Because you were, you're able to see it. Now, by contrast, mm-hmm. trade agreements, including the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, for some reason, are negotiated in total secrecy. Mm-hmm. So interested parties cannot, they can go to the rounds where they're being negotiated, but they cannot go into the room. Mm-hmm. And they cannot see the text. And they cannot say, I prefer option A to option D, because they don't, in fact, know what are the options on the table. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a secretive process, and in this process, the way the United States does it, is it allows a cadre of individuals, more or less 600, uh, which is quite small when you compare it to the U.S. population, mm-hmm. 330 million, yes. uh, to have some access to the at least the, what the U.S. is putting on the table. Mm-hmm. And of those 600 or so advisors, more than 90% are really representatives of individual businesses and associations of businesses, mm-hmm. so business interests. And the remaining 10%, there are some labor union representatives, a few environmental advocates, a few academics and, and local government officials. But it's really essentially a rigged process because you have the outcome baked in the cake when mm-hmm. you say... of our advice is going to be taken from corporate interests, and and the other voices are minimized. And then when the trade agreement comes out, it's not subject to amendment. So even at that point, folks who want to advocate for the interests of ordinary Americans cannot say, oh my gosh, you know, chapter 11 or whatever it is they want to be upset about is just terrible. Let's either rewrite it or remove it because that's actually devastating to whether it's jobs, interests, food safety, you know, whatever the interest is. That's not the option. Mm-hmm. Congress will have an option to vote yes or no, and that's it. And that's really tough because at that point, when Congress is voting, you know, the the administration, whatever administration it is, this is not a Democratic Republican thing, mm-hmm. will say. We've been working on these negotiations for three years or five years or six, however long it was, and we really owe it to our international allies to vote yes on the agreement because otherwise we will be harming U.S. interests in the world. Mm-hmm. And typically that's what Congress does. No agreement that has come before Congress under the process called fast track, meaning the Congress has to vote quickly and no amendments, um, has ever been defeated. And it's, so it's really rigged. And then to go back to the environmental question, 
the rules in these trade agreements, again, unbeknownst to, you know, average citizens, because mm-hmm. there's so much secrecy around these agreements, they can actually be used to undermine the very environmental goals that are set up either in, you know, the Paris climate talks or in other places uh, in our, uh, just through our democracy. Uh-huh. So trade has been used to, to attack For instance, India has a policy to try and promote solar, which is actually quite important because India's population is so large, it's really got to go green or it's going to have a huge impact on pollution and Mm -hmm. climate change. And that's been attacked through trade agreements. Canada has a similar program to promote the manufacture and use of solar panels, and that's been attacked. So one thing that we see with all the secrecy around trade and and the fact that average folks whether it's you know academics that are experts or whether it's groups of interested citizens working together trade sometimes undermines the things that we're trying to do in the rest of the economy Hmm. now i you know that's that's such a, a a statement and i I want us to understand what that means. I'm going to ask this then. You mentioned options earlier. Did, uh, didn't the AFL-CIO offer the government options that were uh, better for the world in general, environment, etc., cetera, uh, than the TPP option? Certainly that was our point of view. And <laughs> yes, we did. We wrote public comments back in 2010 at the outset of the negotiations that really laid out a roadmap. You know, this is where our past trade agreements have gone wrong Mm -hmm. with respect to investor rights, with respect to the environment, with respect to medicines. Many people don't know that trade agreements set down rules for the patenting and the marketing of medicines, you know, for labor rights, on and on and on. And, you know, in our view, sort of 95% of our advice was wholly disregarded, just not even considered. And of the bits that were considered, in most cases, our ideas were taken and watered down to the point where they're, you know, not going to accomplish what we meant them to accomplish, Mm -hmm. and then put in. And then we're told, look how, look at this agreement, it's historically pro-labor, and and, wait a minute, you know, and you can only get away with saying that if folks don't really know the details. And it's hard for average citizens to know the details given the secrecy. And and now that the agreement is out and finished, it's, if you read the whole thing, it's about 6,000 pages. Mm-hmm. And it's very much in sort of tradies, which is like legal. If you've ever tried to actually read, for instance, your insurance contract, yes. or you know, if you've purchased a car and you try to read, that is the kind of language that's used in the trade agreement. And so, you know, then you get these platitudes about trade will create jobs, no trade's going to hurt jobs. And it's quite difficult for folks who aren't ensconced in trade law to to look at the agreement by itself and figure out what it really means. So we say the best way to figure it out is look at similar trade agreements with similar language and how they've worked out in the past, because we do have historical precedent. And that seems the best way to judge what the TPP is going to do. Now, is the TPP, uh, you know, before I ask that question, I'm going to come back, but I, 
I would like to hear you give us some idea of what trade means, because it seems to me that TPP and those who want it to be the law of the of the earth of the of the planet gets beyond that original what is my original concept anyway of trade trade meaning uh, you have something i want i have something you want we're going to exchange this for mutual benefit forgive me if that, if that sounds as naive sure. as it sounds to me but
rights were violated uh, for my investment in the U.S. I mean, this is how much money we want to be paid off. And that, you know, it doesn't matter if the U.S. Supreme Court has already said the law is perfectly fine and constitutional, or if, you know, the challenge has been made in a state court and the state court said, no, 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 your rights aren't violated. This international tribunal doesn't have to take account of all of that at all and can make its own decision. And these, uh, the U.S., in fact, is there was an announcement last week that TransCanada, the company that wanted to build the Keystone oh, yes, yes. XL pipeline, uh, is going to be suing the United States under one of these tribunals and under NAFTA. And the interesting, you know, people are have legitimate concerns on all sides of the, the Keystone mm-hmm. XL pipeline. And, and the question for Americans really is not about the Keystone Pipeline. The question for Americans is, is this how we want to make our decisions nationally? Do we want foreign companies, whether they're from the NAFTA countries, that's Canada and Mexico, or all these new TPP countries, so Australia, Vietnam, Japan, do we want foreign corporations coming in and second-guessing our system and overruling our democracy? Well, that can happen in you know, as a result of the TPP. And then I haven't even gotten to the fact that there are chapters in the TPP that say, this is how you can uh, regulate your banks. This is how you can regulate food safety. Uh, Mm. This is how you have to give, um, this is how you can price drugs in your, you know, public health programs like Medicare. So these these are all kinds of rules that typically Americans would say to themselves, that's not, really a trade issue. That's something that Congress exactly. should make rules for in a democratic manner so I can weigh in. And now we can't weigh in. It's, it's So these trade agreements are sort of like a box around our democracy saying you can go this far, but don't go farther because you might be in violation of a trade agreement. So just to recap that a bit, if I may, and I'm oversimplifying, but you jump in at any point with TPP in particular, but NAFTA as well. But with TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, there is going to be a secret or private court with a tribunal of attorneys. It's called ISDS, and they get to decide, using the language in TPP, whether or not certain laws infringe upon their rights within United States of America, and you included some of those uh, possibilities, like the the cost of medication, pharmaceuticals, etc. And it, it, did did I get all that? Is that what what you've been telling that's, us? No, that's exactly right. I would say that they are private courts. They are not secret in that we know they exist, but but we, we can't go there. And there, well, we could theoretically, you you could go. Uh, and get read all the transcripts from them and 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 do all of that. Mm-hmm. So there are some some countries do ISDS in such a way that all of the hearings and transcripts and and results are secret. So mm. so we know for instance there have been more than 600 of these type of cases filed by mm-hmm. private companies against sovereign nations in the history of this system since about 1994 was the first case. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the ones we know about. We know there's some number greater than 600, but we don't know exactly that because some countries, even the existence of the case is secret. So, again, 
again, it's sort of, you know, this is one of those who defend the system. One of their defenses is it's totally transparent. Mm. You know what the case is. And it's like, okay, so it's transparent that I'm losing my democracy mm. because a foreign company doesn't like what our government did. Well, mm. that actually doesn't make me feel a whole lot better. That's true. <laughs> uh, 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 let me give a hypothetic again, just so we drive this point home. We do have to, to go, but I, I want to ask, for instance, if a an international corporation that has agreed with TPP has an operation in the United States of America that happens to spill intentionally or otherwise methane gas into the atmosphere or coal ash into the water, the local or state or federal government even of the United States saying, no, you can't do that, you have to fix it, could be taken into an ISDS private court and sued, kind of like what the KL Pipeline folks are doing. Is that, again, I'm, I'm asking you, I know I'm oversimplifying, but you tell us. Is that about that is, it? That type of thing could happen. The, the uh, company would have to make an argument that the, the cleanup order you know, was somehow violated. It's so large, the cleanup costs are so large that it's essentially a taking or an expropriation of its property. Or it would argue that the cleanup order was arbitrary and unfair mm -hmm. and violated its basic right to fairness. Well, you can imagine how sort of vague mm. the standard for fairness is. Yes. Um, so it could do that. And then what happens is if the U.S. were to lose, the order would be for money. So the U.S. taxpayers would have to pay back this private corporation some of whatever the monetary order is. Now, uh, again, defenders of the system will say, well, isn't it great? The only penalty is money. They can't actually overturn the U.S. law. Well, you know... In, but in they the make it ineffectual. Example, <laughs> in the example you gave, the, the cleanup order was a cost, and then the U.S., Taxpayers having to reverse the company that polluted, uh, reimburse the company that polluted for the cleanup, mm -hmm. that essentially is undermining the yes. law. But, but in many cases where the country uh, and the company settle, and the U.S. has not done this, but other uh, countries that were sued have, mm -hmm. so Poland has done this, the Czech Republic now has done this, um, they often say to the company, I don't, I'm afraid I might lose if we go all the way through the case. And the cases cost, on average, $8 million, U.S. dollars, to defend. Mm. Uh, they might say, what if we lower the fine or modify the regulation or repeal the law? Mm. Would you drop the case? So in many cases, uh, what the private company wants really is for the law or the regulation or the order not to exist. And sometimes they get that. And while the U.S. Uh, has been sued under the system a number of times and won. That's no guarantee of future success. And the TPP will double the number of foreign-owned corporations that will have the right to bring a suit. By bringing in Australia and Japan, for instance, mm -hmm. both of those countries have companies of that nationality that are owned in the U.S. and they could bring cases against the U.S. So it's you know, in our view, and the, the, those who defend the system say it brings more investment, it, you know, it, it protects investors, it, it's a good thing for rule of law. And we say 
No, it undermines rule of law because it's it's a very risky road to go down to mm-hmm. say one company's private interest is more important than the democratic choices of the citizens of the United States or whatever country is, is the defending country. Mm. All right. We need to end this on an upbeat, uh, give us the half full glass, and I guess that is uh, Celeste Drake. How do we get into the good fight against TPP? Uh, who do we reach out to? Um, I don't know if our lawmakers are the most efficient, but what, what do we do? How do we find well, out more information from you, for instance? The lawmakers have uh, that decision in their hands. Eventually, they'll have to take a vote, so it will be important. But uh, I would say, first of all, learn more and recognize that this really isn't about trade or no trade. Yes. It's about what are the rules, and we want better rules. And a great place to start is the AFL-CIO's own website. It's mm-hmm. AFL. CIO.org. You click on issues and then you click on trade and you'll find a lot of resources, uh, explanations, handouts, two pagers. I post a lot of blogs. If you go to AFLCIO.org and hit blog and then look me up, Celeste Drake, you can see a lot of the things that I've written. People can become activists by signing up when they come to our website for text alerts or email alerts and join our campaign. There are other organizations out there that agree with us that the TPP is a bad way to do trade. So Mm -hmm. whether it's Public Citizen, National Consumers League, Sierra Club, Friends of the Earth, National Farmers Union, you know, a wide variety of organizations. You can go to their website. You can go to Mm. exposethetpp.org. gotten a lot of information from all the organizations and put it sort of a one-stop shop where you can learn about it and educate yourself. But really the important thing is uh, President Obama is going to sign the agreement Mm -hmm. on February 4th. Uh Um, So it would be great for folks to weigh in before then and basically say to the president, hey, don't sign it. Mm -hmm. We can do better. We want better from you for, you know, the American people. And then if he does sign it, to make sure they keep staying informed and educated and tell their member of Congress, vote no. We don't, we don't deserve this. This is bad for our economy in the long run, and we should stop and start over and do it the right way. Very good. All right. Well, that at least gives us an action plan, starting with AFLCIO.org and the blog of Celeste Drake, our guest today. Thank you so much, Celeste, for being on the show. It is packed with information that's so important. We need to not be fooled by the word trade because it's been redefined. We need to know more uh, so that we can make informed decisions, and you certainly have done a lot to make that possible today. Again, thank you so much for being on the show, and I wish you all the best, and I certainly will be visiting your blog. Okay? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. New Yorkers have a reputation for being brusque and scary. Act in ignorance, they let you know. I Like Killing Flies tells us of a significant contributor to this myth. 
Here we are introduced to Shopsons, the infamous neighborhood restaurant which operated in New York for over 30 years. Kenny Shopson, the all-powerful master of his domain and philosopher to all, served up comfort food with a side of danger. To diners lucky enough to deserve service, if you follow the rules, you could choose from over 900 dishes. Be adventurous. Order blisters on my sisters, postmodern pancakes, or Thai cob salad. The rules? Constantly changing at Kenny's whim. Standards include no two orders the same. Too boring. Don't dare pull out that cell phone. No tables of five. And don't try that stupid idea of splitting up. If you're a table of five, you're a table of five and banned for life. This entertaining and insightful documentary speaks with surprising depth to the value of characters specific to place. Word of warning. If you happen to find the new Shopsons in the Essex market, don't tell them you came because of this film. You will be banned for life. I like killing flies. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. With a song in my heart. If America is to be an unchained melody of our Declaration of Independence, Gettysburg Address, and I Have a Dream, we're going to have to do a whole lot better at Love Thy Neighbor as Thyself. Virginia, for example, the mother of presidents, wasn't Virginia is for lovers, for Richard and Mildred Loving, nor yet loving women enough to ratify the ERA. Curious how the Supreme Court seemed more loving during massive resistance to school integration in the 1950s than the current Roberts and Scalia Court of Private Opinions. Notwithstanding the Affordable Obamacare Act and same-sex marriage decisions, choices in Bush v. Gore and Citizens United mar American claims of justice for all just as the Baltimore City Jail Whipping Post did between 1885 and 1938. The loving equality chiseled above the Supreme Court entrance in our nation's capital is now a cliché of justice denied, even to those trumped up by unpresidential Republican candidates rendering the wind beneath my wings as hollow as the right wings support our troops. Both great sentiments, but what's love got to do with it? It's time to realize true patriots don't speak as a child, but have instead put away childish things, like Second Amendment rewrites to profane militia. Grown-up patriots save a child's future from Michigan Governor Rick Snyder's Flint water, from Duke Energy Dan River coal ash spill, from gushing greed rippling from January 10, 1901, Spindletop Hill, Texas from SoCal methane gas leak in Porter Ranch Estates, from a decrease in rainforest and increase in extinction of Earth's inhabitants, from the myriad of fruit from our denial, fracking, sinkholes, mudslides, floods, tornadoes, and El Nino. It's increasingly difficult for the multitude of consumers homeless veterans, and minimum wage earners to, unlike Mozart, stand muted in the jungle of Wall Street's monkey business, harmonizing to, I will always love you. 
However, our love is here to stay could be more love actually, and potentially as timeless as the age of Adeline, if only we stop treating the promise of the Statue of Liberty like a New Year's resolution. What if every breath we take is potentially full of, I've had the time of my life? We whistle a happy tune, while ignoring the climate change, Chipotle, and Snowball Congress we leave our children. Our 2016 election results need to conduct the world's melodies in a refrain of, Can you feel the love tonight? Or we're no better than the Florida residents of the villages who threw their children and grandchildren under the Paul Ryan bus. From elementary school to voting booth, all our children need a love that enables their moving forward, shaking off the dust of our over-consumerism, a love that lights their life's journey away from TPP to the truth of a world at peace with the earth. Whether a nation under God, or out of many one, we either bequeath free will and the Bill of Rights, or inherit the wind of the money changers. The time is now. Our 2016 votes need to wake up all politicians, especially members of Congress, repeal Citizens United, and reverse the unloving results of tax cuts for billionaires, secret international trade deals, and trickle-down food deserts. Let us hold a mirror up to shameless K-Street lobbyists, GOP governors, Republican legislatures, and banksters, by leading, by example, our Congress and the U.S. Supreme Court fixing our thoughts, votes, and actions on what is true to the common good. Love is a many-splendor thing, but tomorrow is no longer just another day, for we are already late to the good fight to preserve, protect, and defend the America of the I Sing. Or can we yet see in your eyes you make my dreams come true? Join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Music